We are in a brand new series called Temptation. We're gonna be talking about the temptations of Jesus. We're gonna take these three weeks leading up to and through Easter and, and talk of, uh, about that, how we experience the same kinds of temptation in our own lives as well. So I thought what we would do uh, is that we just, we just uh, jump into the scripture today as our, as our context. Uh, so let's read together. You can read it up here with me on the screen or you can open up to your, your Bible as well. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which is the understatement of the year, I think. Uh, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put your Lord, the Lord your God, to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. So can you imagine what it would be like to have all the power and all the authority in the world at your fingertips? You not only have authority over the elements, over what is already in, in, it has been created, but you have imagination to create new things in their place as well. You could end poverty with all that amassed power and authority. And just a snap, you could multiply Big Macs and bottomless cups of coffee could literally be a thing for everyone everywhere. You could end poverty. You could close the wealth gap. You could create wealth for the, the, the middle and lower classes. You could uh, just create things to, to, be, to, to create wealth and, 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 and finance and all those things. At the snap of a finger, the, 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 the tip of your hand, you could do that for all the people of all the world. You could do all those things. But would you? Would you do those things if you could? We'd like to think, well, of course, if I had all power and authority, I would use it for good. I would benefit other people. I would, I would uh, end things or create things. I would make the world a much better place. World peace would happen on my watch because we tend to overestimate the goodness of our own hearts. We tend to overestimate how good we really, really are. Um, we could do all those things. We, we could... You know, if you remember, did anybody remember Bruce Almighty? That movie, right? Uh, so in that movie, Bruce thinks he can do, do God's job better. So God, with the uh, immaculate voice of Morgan Freeman, gives him the job of God, right? And so he's, he's having fun with it. He's trying to help other people. Uh, uh, email is the way that he gets prayer requests. So he sits down and types and answers prayer. And then suddenly, uh, soon, really, he gets overwhelmed, so he sets the email autoresponder to yes, so every prayer is answered yes, which seems like a great hack, right, for your God? The thing is, like, all the, all the answered prayer, all the people asking 
uh, to win the lottery actually do win the lottery, which is great, right? Why not make all those people happy, except they got their 38 cent payout because the lottery works on scarcity, right? So if everybody wins, everybody gets just a little piece of the pie. So everybody is like re- revolting against God and in this answered prayer at this time. So that is one speculation on how that might go down if you just wave your hand and say yes with all your newfound power and authority and trying and wanting to, to do good. Um, but imagine this too. Um, do you know the strong pull to, that we have? Really, if we're like honest, the strong pull to use power and authority and influence for our own means. I mean, imagine as you go throughout your day and you become suddenly aware of all the crushing uh, poverty, all the need, and all the obligation pressing in at you from every, every direction. Before, you could, you could hit some compassion fatigue and sort of shut your brain off or shut your heart off to the need in the world. Now, you could actually do something about it. So what would you do with all of the obligations pressing in, all the asks, all the what ifs, all the could you's, asking for some attention and some of your power, some of your influence, some of your authority. Imagine all the empty stomachs crying out to you and you could hear them all at once. The, the, the empty bank accounts, the uh, wars and civil unrest that you could get involved with, but you're only one person, right? You're only one person with that enormous responsibility of power. Now imagine, now imagine that because of your power, you could become the arbiter of who is worthy of your help. You're proud to be an American, right? So maybe America gets first dibs on your attention. And you, you tend to elevate her because of your friends and your family that live here in this country. Or maybe, maybe you're just a bit jaded and disillusioned because of America. And Americans actually get the last of your time and attention. But the point is, you get to decide who gets your time and attention and who gets a response in power to answer their needs. What about the brand that you could build as the world's most powerful person? You tell yourself that you could help a lot more people if you hire a marketing company, if you get the word out and become some kind of influencer, right? There's a lot of people that could know about you and benefit from what you have to offer. So of course, you're gonna become a brand, you're gonna trademark your logo and, and your appeal and get out on social media and maybe monetize it because it'd be nice to actually get some money flowing in than just flowing out from your fingertips every once in a while. Imagine, just imagine what you could do if all the power and all authority was given to you, right? Yet, there's a problem because it's all for a good cause because we overestimate what we think we're able to do and the goodness of our own hearts because that's what we keep telling ourselves. We could tell ourselves all sorts of things about who we are and what, about what our motivations are about that. And there's, there's, there's a sense in which we need to tell ourselves that we're a good person and we do good things and it results in good things all the time. There's sort of a need to just live in a, a disillusioned state, checked out of reality because our fragile egos maybe can't handle all the negative impact that could possibly happen because of our even good intentions sometimes. There's a depth of deception and mixed motives that we have trouble getting to the bottom of. 
And so instead, we really need someone else to hold a mirror up to us, to actually tell us no sometimes. No, I know, you're, I know what you want to do, but it's actually not gonna work out that way. It's not gonna work out the way that you think. You're gonna hurt more people than you help. You actually don't have pure motives. You actually intend to use some of that power and some of the authority, and maybe just not some of it, but most of it, for your own good, to build your own brand, to win the popularity contest that you never won growing up. We need someone else to come into our lives and hold a mirror up to us and show us who we really are and chart a path forward for us. Because we all, to some degree, have a little bit of power. We all have a little bit, you might call it influence, you might call it leadership. We all in our lives have even just a little bit. We, we may even have more than we think we do because you certainly have friends that you can influence. You certainly have family members. Maybe you're a mom or a dad that leads a family, right? Maybe you lead in your workplace. Maybe you're class president. You have some measure of power and of influence. And even though you may not have all of it that's available to the world, you have some of it. So what are you doing with that? How are you impacting the world around you with it? So to begin his earthly ministry, Jesus met up with his relative, John the Baptist. I want to set a little bit of context for the, the wilderness temptations of Jesus. When Jesus, what he first did to engage in public ministry is he met up with uh, someone we, we think maybe even be a cousin or a distant relative named John the Baptist because he wanted to submit to the baptism of John. John lived out in the web wilderness, a part of a community that was waiting for God to do a new thing. And he, they went out proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus went out to the Jordan River, met up with John and his community and was baptized. And the moment that he was baptized, kind of an unveiling of his public ministry, revealing to the world who he was, that the heavens, the skies were split open and thundering down from heaven was a vo the voice of his father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So we've received this public recognition and public affirmation from God the Father. And, and with that, the spirit descended on him. Some, some said it looked or, or seemed like a dove that came down from heaven and anointed him with power and authority to go into his ministry. And then it says in Matthew 4.1, Jesus then was led. Some translations say uh, were, was driven, was forced into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. Isn't that interesting? His, his first public uh, 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 ministry uh, experience was being driven, led, guided, forced into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted, to, to meet Satan face to face. And so after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus was baptized, anointed by the Spirit, affirmed by his Father, and he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And it was in that place of weakness, at the very end of his fasting, that's when the tempter, when, when Satan, when the devil met him. And when he was as most emptied out and most reliant on the Spirit for his power and the most reliant on his Father for guidance, and, you know, I don't know if you've fasted. I've fasted some in my life. I've never done a 40-day no-food fast, a couple days at most. I am not my best self. I think that's the whole point of fasting is that you're like, 
Un, you're, you're, you get in touch with all the stuff that's in there once the props are kicked out of food and other comfort, right? Uh, and so Jesus uh, met Satan at what supposedly was his weakness, but he was full of God, full of affirmation. And it's at that moment that the spirit thought he would be weak like other people, but Jesus was at his strongest because he was most reliant. If I can say it like that, right? Uh, we, we have to understand too that Jesus... Um, he, he engaged in temptation, uh, not as God. Like, that wouldn't be impressive necessarily if, if Jesus withstood temptation from Satan. And we looked at it and said, well, of course God beats the devil. That's how it's supposed to work. But we have to realize Jesus was fully God, yes, but he set aside his godhood and took on human flesh and walked out in the spirit his earthly ministry, which it, that, what that means is he walked out what the ex, human experience was like as a human person, as a human man, uh, surrendered to the guidance of God and full of the Holy Spirit. That's why there's lessons to be learned and how we look at these temptations and the whole life and ministry of Jesus, because it's not just God walking around doing God's stuff. It's what it's like as a human man a human person filled with the Spirit and filled with God's affirmation, led by God and surrendered to God's will, that's how he's engaging in this. That's why we look at it and go, that's, that is so mind-blowing that he could do that, right? It's, it's a picture of what humanity was really supposed to look like before the fall. Before sin entered the world, we were all supposed to be submitted to God's will and full of this spirit in some sort of mystical, mysterious way that we're not, we can't fully comprehend. So, in utter reliance to his father, the devil came to, to tempt him. And then in this first temptation, Jesus was challenged by Satan, and he was challenged to prove himself. He was challenged to prove his relevance to this world by taking dusty stones and turning it, them into something that would quiet his hunger. That's not a bad thing, right? But the subtle lie that's buried in this is in the twisted question that Jesus was asked, is, uh, if Jesus was able to use his power and his purposes to suit himself. Purposes that were not aligned with the bigger uh, mission for which he had been sent, for which the Father had sent the Son in the power of the Spirit. The, the challenge was, could Jesus step outside of that and do something that his, his Father was not guiding him to do? These subtle lies are the same ones that we face to use whatever authority, whatever power, whatever influence for ourselves. It's a never-ending cycle of staying relevant, remaining popular, and the struggle to remain seen by other people. And so it's whether, you think about it, and it's whether we want to stay up to date on the 24-hour news cycle to be in the know or to be up to date on whatever influencer is selling whatever fad diet or workout program, hoping that you'll sign up because you're, you're just like, they, they sell it to you in this kind of subtle, like, if you would just do this, then you could be like me. You could travel where I travel. You could have as much money as I have. And they play on our weaknesses, because that's the culture today. And we buy into it because we're not secure in who we are. It, it's no coincidence that the first question that the devil asked Jesus was, if you are the son of God. You notice the subtle subtlety in that question? If you're really God's son, you should be able to do this and not break a sweat, right? If, if you are Christians, if you follow God, if God is as good as he says he is, and so on and so on and, and so forth is what we're hit with day in and day out. 
And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a struggle for relevance. It's a struggle for popularity. It's a struggle to prove ourselves, to remain seen, to, to believe that we're important, to believe that other people see us as important, right? Trying to prove yourself that you matter and that you're better than people you went to college or high school with will leave you just more emptier than before. Culture has a way of organizing us around a never-ending popularity contest. Like, you, you hit, like there, every stage of your life, unless you, know, you have to listen to last week's message, unless you hit like stage five or six, uh, maturity in the spirit where you just don't care. But man, it hits you like, you, you never get away from it, right? High school, it's the politics of high school. College, it's who's dating who or what degree or what grade point average you have or who landed the internship or, or the job with a bonus. Your 30s, it's like whose kids, you know, shop at the best, you know, you have the best clothes or you, you have, oh, you have disposable diapers, we have washable bamboo diapers. It's, it's, that's, so, that's so cute, you know? Your 40s, it's like that guy's lawn looks better than mine. What's he doing? What's his secret? You know, it just, it never ends, does it? And this is life, unless we break out of this cycle of comparison and insecurity in who we are before God. Jesus, that's the reason that he came, to do those things, to break the cycle and to rescue us from it. Jesus has the authority and the leadership proven to do that. Think of this. From the beginning, he was lacking in all things that would be an outward badge of honor to his culture. He was born in some backwoods town. Some saw that he was conceived illegitimately. No one knew for sure who his dad was. He remained like a nobody for 30 years. So he was restrained in his identity not being revealed. When he got baptized, he was about 30 years old. 30 years, he remained in that backwater town. One time, his parents forgot him at the temple. That's how much they didn't think very much of him, right? His ministry only lasted three and a half years. 30 years of anonymity for three years of ministry. Some would say, what a waste that was. Some could accuse him of not amounting to much. Like, if he was worth very much, if he was the son of God, he would have a lifelong ministry, and thousands and hundreds of thousands or millions of, of people following him when he was alive. When he was wrongfully condemned in a sham trial, his life was cut off unexpectedly. In his culture, if you were hung on a tree, if you were hung on a cross, that meant you were a cursed person. And when he was died, he died full of humiliation, naked, lifted up for his whole city to see, and he was kept company only by his mom and Mary Magdalene, who was seen as having her own issues. This is not the tale of someone who's chasing popularity. It's quite opposite. Instead, he came to break the cycles of us needing to prove ourselves to each other, thinking we don't measure up or we don't matter very much. That's really what's going on deep down. Jesus came to break the cycle of letdown, of, of betrayal, and the deep inner wounding that causes us all to want attention like this in the first place. He has come to shine the light of God's love in those deep places, to not just break the cycle and go, hey, good luck, but actually cure what's wrong with the human heart, to rescue us and bring us back to himself. That's what he came for. Like You can be free from this. 
from, from all the, the self-doubt that says you don't matter, from all the hurt and the betrayal of growing up, from all the shame and all the things that cause you to want to compete with someone else or just show them that you're better in some way. Yeah, you, you know, it's like we've got the friends, we're close, but you kind of injured me and I've never talked to you about that, so I'm just going to one-up you in all the subtle ways. God can heal that, to heal that need, to just be love in people's lives and not have anything to prove. Do you know what it looks like to not have anything to prove to anybody? It's exactly what Jesus looks like, where he can give away love, because he's got an endless supply, and there's nothing blocking the flow. So, a few comments, just as some applications, some, some, uh, some things that come up in this story that I think is worth identifying. First is the devil and spiritual warfare. Now, the thing is, spiritual warfare isn't a biblical term. You can't go to your glossary or index or whatever and, and, and thumb through and find it. It's a term that mostly like the, the Western evangelical culture has popularized a lot through like Frank Peretti novels, which I'm not against. It's just we, we have a lot of not great ideas about what spiritual warfare, what, what engaging with the enemy looks like that doesn't come from the, the Bible itself. So uh, my hope is not to do an exhaustive uh, study of, of Satan and, and, and demonology or any of those things, and I'm not sure who all would stick around for that. But uh, it's to just mention, like, Satan comes up in the story. Great. If you have no affiliation with a, a church before and you're going, great, Satan, I'm not even sure about that guy, you're in the right place. That's okay. We're wrestling with these very concepts and some of us need a refresher on, you know, getting away from the culture of, of, of the church and getting back into the scriptural uh, content. So that's what we're going to do today. So the devil uh, is referred to in scripture as Satan, as the evil one, uh, the destroyer, the deceiver, the enemy of our souls, and so on and so forth. So he has a lot of names. And when, you, when we call him Satan, Satan actually isn't a proper noun. It's not actually a name. Uh, in, in the Hebrew, it's ha-setan, uh, the, the deceiver. Uh, that's just kind of what he's known as, but we've popularized it as, as a proper name, proper noun, Satan. So that's one, that's one thing. Uh, two is uh, we believe that he is, he is, a, uh, he is an entity. He is a, he's not a human, but he's a he, he's personified. He's a person in that way. Uh, many believe, uh, pointing to parts of the Bible, that we, he was created as a good part of creation, as one of the angelic order. In fact, he was probably one of the highest angels in kind of the hierarchy of angels, having jobs maybe like spiritual formation or leading the Lord's choir. We're not, we're not exactly sure what all he did, but at some point, uh, the pride of his heart entered in and he became a fallen angel when, when God threw him and about a third of the angels who followed him out of heaven and restricted their access. And so now they're, they're kind of like plaguing earth and, and uh, influencing people, which we'll get into in, in a second about how they do that. John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, says this, the devil is an immaterial but real intelligence at work in the world. I think that's a great way to think about it, though. Uh, an immaterial but real intelligence at work in the world with more power or influence than any other creature in the universe after God. He is the evil behind so much of the evil in our souls and society. For Jesus, the secular theories that attempt to explain evil as simply a lack of education, inadequate wealth redistribution, Marxist power analysis, or even the toxicity of religion gone bad 
all fall short of explaining reality. The only way to make sense of evil in all its malevolence from large global systems of evil, such as systemic racism or economic colonialism, to much smaller human-scale evil, such as our inability to stop our self-destructive drinking or hold back biting comments toward our friends, is to see an animating force behind it adding fuel to the proverbial fire, dividing humanity against itself and a kind of societal suicide. I think that's a great way to actually describe Satan and how he influences and affects our world today. Um, so the devil is real. He is, he is evil, inca- not incarnate. Uh, there, there's just all sorts of ways you should and should not. I even have trouble, trouble uh, 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 describing it sometimes. But he is the evil behind all evil is a great way to say that. Now, with spiritual warfare, how does he actually influence us and what can, what can we do uh, to, to push back, to fight back, and to resist? So if you're thinking that, that's a great question. Let's talk about that. Uh, demonic temptations, so if, if Satan is the evil behind the evil, temptations can be used by him uh, for his uh, dark purposes. I like to think of it like this. Demonic temptations are like spiritual disinformation campaigns. The battle is for the truth. Remember when Jesus said in John chapter 8, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. A lot of the temptations that we face are mental and emotional, right? Those are the temptations. It's a a war for our soul, what we will believe, and how to to separate ourselves from disinformation. So if you remember the 2016 election, this is going way back. It feels like like three lives have happened since then, right? These three decades or something. I don't know. Uh, but if you remember, there's a lot going on in the 2016. That's an understatement. There's a lot going on in 2016. One of the things was uh, uh, the Russian disinformation campaign. Okay, so get your tinfoil hats ready because this actually happened. This is a thing. It's not just one of those weird, you know, great ant conspiracy theories. So in 2016, uh, Russia got involved with our, and, the, and there was all kind of speculation that it didn't happen, but there's more and more evidence that it actually did. Uh, to what degree is still debatable, but it's not that they were involved. So Russia got involved in our election process, okay? The, their angle in the last election was to heighten the divide in America by fomenting discord to take the spotlight off of their country. Okay, so that's why, where a lot of distrust towards Russia you know, beyond like Rocky IV and all that happened in the 80s, like the most local, you know, things right before the Ukrainian war was this 2016 election about like the Russians are trying to rig our elections. Who, for who and against who is still, again, debatable, but they did that. The more enraged our country is in itself, the less likely we are to impose trade restrictions or other policies that hinders Russia's progress is what they, what they figured. So, the, the question is, though, but did they create division? Did they create all the, the uproar and distrust between Republicans and Democrats? No, they didn't create it. They simply threw Facebook money at ads to get you to believe that the other side was the enemy. And so when we were fighting each other and trying to elect a president and not sure about who was involved, they were sitting back with the spotlight off of them watching us burn our country down, or it felt like that, but it didn't actually happen like that. That's what spiritual warfare really is. Satan takes temptation, and he throws fire at it. He throws Facebook advertising dollars in your mind at it to get you to think certain things, to get you to feel certain things, though he can't make you do any of that. He just influences in various ways 
So that it, the spotlight is off him and it's on dividing you against yourself, you against God, you against your family or your community. So he doesn't create it. He uses the circumstances all of us already find ourselves in to manipulate us and to tempt us into sin so we're further isolated from God and from freedom, okay? Does that help? Does that make sense? Like, it doesn't make sense, but it makes sense in a way. Okay, so that's Satan and spiritual warfare as best as I can describe it today. Second, I wanna talk about sin and personal responsibility. Uh, It was really interesting, uh, in the 50s or 60s, uh, Menninger, uh, I think Charles Menninger, the Menninger Clinic, Menninger Clinic in, the, in Topeka, wrote a book called Whatever Happened to Sin. And he was identifying, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, our cultural temptation to explain away sin, to say that, that humanity doesn't, isn't without its mistakes, but isn't fundamentally broken. That, that's what Christians would argue, is that we were created good and that we are loved We are quite the mess, but we are more deeply loved than we can know in either of those situations. And our culture wants to explain that away and say that that we're just good all the time. And and what freedom looks like is more self-actuation. It's actually being true to your deepest self. That's what freedom looks like. And sin is actually anything or anyone that would stand in your way or not affirm you in your identity. Okay, but the Christian idea of sin is that God created us good and loved, and we went our own way. We embraced a life outside of his will and outside of submission to him, and we chose love, but love that pointed inward. That's what Augustine says that sin is. It's love that's pointed inward at ourselves. Tim Keller says this, when the Bible talks about sin, it's not just referring to the bad things that we do, It's not just lying or lust or whatever the case may be. It is ignoring God in the world he has made. It's rebelling against him by living without reverence to him. It's saying, I will decide exactly how I live my life. And Jesus says, that is our main problem. Sin is saying, I will live my life my way outside of surrender and pursuit of God in all these areas. So, I think that's a great definition. Secondly, what I wanted to say about sin is that it is our, aside from being our fundamental problem, sin and being caught up in systems of sin, being in a culture that is postured to draw us away from God, does not erase our personal responsibility in sin. Sin is, is can, can as, as John Mark Comer and even, even Keller here alluded to, uh, sin exists in systems that we build because they're human-built systems but it never erases our personal responsibility to say yes to God and no to any kind of life or any kind of sin that pulls us away from him. So any of this, the devil made me do it nonsense uh, is not one that the Bible or Jesus recognizes as true. There is always personal responsibility. And what I believe, and this will flow into my third point, is that when we posture ourselves to say yes to God, as difficult as that may be, as unpopular as that may be, and no to sin in the same way, as unpopular as that may be and as difficult as it is, God will make a way for us. It may not be the way that we want to walk or want to go or how to submit, but when we say yes to him and no to sin, he will make a path for us out of those situations. So third, 
joining the resistance, because that's what this life is. There is no neutral here. It is a, it is a life of pursuing God or not. And I know I actually really don't like thinking in black and white, but I think this is an area where it is pretty black and white. It's like bicycling uphill. If you're not pedaling, you're going backwards. That's what this life is. You're either resisting sin and pursuing God or you're not. There's no coasting. There's no retirement from this life. There's no, John Piper, some hate this and some love this, but there's no collecting seashells on the shore to show to God about a productive life. Like that is not impressive to anyone. It is a life of resistance and it is a life of pursuit, okay? Remember, Jesus pursued the will of his father, not as God, but, it, but that submitted to his nature as a person, submitted to the Holy Spirit. That's why, that's why I can say that God will make a way out because Jesus found a way out of every temptation he was faced. Asked to deny God, asked to work outside God's will, asked to hold a popularity contest based on his power, and he made a way out. Now, how did he do that? He used scripture. He used scripture every time. He quoted the words of scripture, the authority of the Bible, back to the devil. Now, the devil tried to use scripture back at him, tried to twist it, tried to manipulate Jesus, but Jesus held firm because he didn't just know the Bible, but he knew the author of the Bible, right? He knew who God was. He knew who his father was, and he said yes to his father to be able to resist the manipulations of the devil and withstand that. I think for us, and, and he was able to, to embrace his identity as a most beloved son of his father. And I think the most important question for us today is to point back to one scripture in particular where Jesus poses uh, uh, to his early apprentices, who do you say that I am? Again, we need to know scripture, but we also need to know the heart of the author of scripture. When Jesus is looking at his disciples, there's all kinds of answers about who people say that he is. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say other, some other Messiah or prophet, and he looks into their eyeballs and he says, who do you say that I am? Because he needed to force that question and force that answer from every one of their hearts to their lips. Who is it that you say Jesus is? In your heart of hearts, Maybe in the loneliness and, or aloneness of your room, maybe in the depth of your heart, who do you say that God is? Is he as good as he says he is? Do you agree with that? Who is Jesus to you? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Savior of the world? Is he the beloved best friend? Is he an, a refuge in times of trouble? Who do you say that Jesus is? Because that wrestling, not to just say my answer, because God won't ask you that when you stand before him. Who did your pastor say that, that I am? He will ask you. He will ask you from the depths of your heart, who am I to you? That needs to be wrestled with because that, in partnership with the Holy Scriptures, will chase the devil away. And that's not like an overstatement or overestimate because James says this. James was the brother of Jesus. He says this in, in chapter four, verse seven. Submit yourselves then to God. Submit, surrender your hearts. 
come into agreement and alignment with who he is and what he says and his heart towards you that is always good and loving. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. We, we have these phrases that can sometimes be trite, but are actually, there's a lot of truth. We say, you know, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It is a religion because it's an organized belief system, setting that aside. It is definitely a relationship. God says it right here through James. Come near to God. Find your safety and your refuge. Find your purpose and your identity. All your popularity that really matters lays in the heart of God right now. Come near to him, and he will come near to you. And it's from that place of safety that when you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Because he's not, he's not actually fleeing from you. He's fleeing from the authority God has given you in the relationship that you have together. It's the anointing of his spirit on your life that as you resist the devil, he will flee because he knows he's not just picking a fight with you. Because you're not over here isolated. You're not over here easily picked off. You're not the weak person in the herd that it's easy to get off and and, and take down. You are, are in the spirit, which means you're arresting in God. And when he picks a fight with you, he picks a fight with all of heaven and all the seraphim and cherubim, all the host of heaven, which means we don't even know what creatures exist up there. It's, it's magnificent and mysterious and terrifying. And when you resist the devil, Based on that relationship and your surrender to God in that place of relationship, he will flee. We need a people who understand this, who understand that sin is real. There are real consequences for living outside God's plan for our lives. It's not something God wants for us, but he loves us enough to give us free will that we could choose our own way if that's what we really want but he loves us enough to keep pursuing us. That if every step away from him, we would turn back to him, he would be right there to take us, bring us home. That sin is real, that there is a real enemy of your soul lying to you and tempting you and inflaming all of those things to get you isolated, to tell you you're better off on your own, to tell you you're the greatest thing ever, to lie to you in all the ways that, that our weak hearts need to be lied to for affirmation on our own. The sin is real, Satan is real, and he's not someone you want to mess with by yourself. But God's love is always available for us to become people of love who are surrendered to God and who can give it away. Henry Nouwen says this in the, way, in the name of Jesus, in our world of loneliness and despair, there is an enormous need for men and women who know the heart of God a heart that forgives, cares, reaches out, and wants to heal. In that heart, there is no suspicion, no vindictiveness, no resentment, and not a tinge of hatred. It is a heart that wants only to give love and receive love in response. It is a heart that suffers immensely because it sees the magnitude of human pain and the great resistance to trusting the heart of God who wants to offer consolation and hope. Knowing God's heart means consistently, radically, and very concretely to announce and reveal that God is love and only love, and that every time fear, isolation, or despair begins to invade the human soul, this is not something that comes from God. 
This sounds very simple and maybe even trite, but very few people know that they are loved without any conditions or limits. That's our message, that you are loved, that you are you're way more messed up than you really know, but you are way more loved than you can ever fully realize. That's our message, and that's our invitation. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up and the communion service. So we're gonna end in a time celebrating the Lord's Supper together as we have been over these past few weeks. Um, before we do that, I wanna tell you two things. I wanna invite you to put this into practice. So what do we do with this? And in this time of communion, maybe during this week, I invite you to carry this question around and talk with God, sit with it, wrestle with it. Where do you feel the strongest pull to prove yourself to others? Where do you feel pulled to one-up people, to make yourself look better? Because it's in that place. Whatever the issue is around that, that's the place you'll probably recognize as a great weakness and an open door for Satan to tempt you. So it's good to be aware of that. Not in any kind of shame or condemnation. This is shame-free, blame-free environment here that we have. But it's a place of becoming aware of who we are, of, of, of how we're loved, but in the weaknesses of our hearts to invite Jesus in and to surrender those places to him and, and allow him to heal so that we could become stronger in him. Okay. Next week, Pastor Sarah is going to teach us about Jesus' second temptation. It's Palm Sunday. I invite you back. It's going to be really great. Uh, why don't you stand with me? So what we'll do here in, in just a moment is that we're going to read the Lord's Prayer together to end our, our teaching time. Um, we invite anyone who is in a right relationship with God through Jesus and a right relationship with others, particularly those in our church family here, um, you're free to come and, and as you wish, uh, take communion. Actually, to come up the center aisle, uh, you can, you can take, uh, tear a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, you can take it there. Uh, or if you need some more time to, to just sit with Jesus, that's fine to take it back. Uh, you can celebrate with a spouse or, or with, with your group as well if you'd like to do that. We do have a gluten-free option or just a little bit more uh, for those that need more sanitary uh, conditions, you can, you can grab it with the tongs there. So let me pray for us. And then we'll do the Lord's Prayer together, okay? So Jesus, thank you for this church. Thank you for this family. God, I ask that you would strengthen us, make us aware of the schemes of the devil, make us aware of the ways in which he exploits our weakness. And God, help us to find our refuge in you. You, are, uh, you always welcome us back, welcome us home, no matter how many steps we've taken. We thank you for your grace we affirm that. We affirm that we, we've all experienced it, God, and we want more of that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, the Lord's Prayer for Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen and amen. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas, where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.